You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Well, our opening theme song is timely. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the Faust myth. So the whole idea of Satan's kingdom coming down is perfect. Thank you to the Blind Revelators once again for letting me use their awesome cover of that song. So uh, as always, I am Danny Anderson welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. As you know, since the beginning of the new year, I've been trying to get uh, more people involved in the show and I've put sort of a call out to creative and really interesting people to send me their stuff. I've got this awesome RSS feed uh, reader building in my computer and I can, I'm reading all these cool blogs that people are sending me and some of these folks are contacting me about coming onto the show and that's where we are today. Um, today we are joined by Patrick Higgins. Um, Patrick, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for reaching out, Patrick. This is really exciting for me. Um, um, why don't you tell us a little about yourself, and then we'll we'll get into the show a little bit. You have a special interest in Faust. <laughs> yes, I, I have something of an obsession with it. Um, I am from Boise, Idaho, and I went to Vassar College to get my bachelor's in media studies, during which time I kind of stumbled into like a bit of a kind of comparative literature sort of sphere that I combined with like kind of experimental studies and writing and stuff like that. And I became really interested in the Faust story through, you know, I was involved in theater and stuff. And I saw, I went to England and I saw the Royal Shakespeare Company do a production and it really blew me away. And I just became obsessed with it. And I, I started studying it and all the different versions and how, how it applies to society and modernity and all, all sorts of things. Um, and especially like it's weird intersection from German folk myth to like American Americana and like, you know, it's a big blues thing selling your soul to the devil or like Tom Waits is so Mephistophelian, like, oh man, stuff like that. Like, oh, I'm so yeah. happy you brought up Tom Waits. I wasn't even thinking of him, but you're totally right. And I'm a huge Tom yeah. Waits fan, actually. Um, and for some reason, he's come up on the show a couple times recently. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's a really great, uh, great analogy. Um, another great thing I think about your work. So you also you part of you have a, a variety of creative outlets, right? Um, and you do a number yeah. of creative things. Um, one of which is a blog, and I want to kind of right away point people at your blog so they can follow yeah. a lot of what you do. It's it's very kind of uh, esoteric, I would say. It's how I would describe it. It isn't <laughs> yeah, necessarily... Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it, it's you sort of being creative. It isn't just you making arguments about current events or whatever. It's it's a creative outlet mm-hmm. and it's sort of an analytical outlet. It's called Pen and Screen. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk, us, talk yep. to us a little bit about it? Yeah, that was just something that I started, I think it was like maybe my second year of college. I was just like, I just want to write more. I just want to like get in the habit of doing that. So I I just kind of started writing about, mostly it started out with just like me commenting on media and my thoughts on media and like what made good, quote unquote, good art and stuff like that. But over time, you know, I've just started putting, you know, I put poetry up there. I put, you know weird ideas for game design up there i put stuff about faust i put dialogues with me between me and the devil (laughs) yeah and i i've always been struck by like a kind of 
weird uh, i've been always interested in a weird attempt where like yeah like you said there's a weird there's a, an analytical touch to it where i'm still trying to use academic concepts and i bring up writers that are like you know like derrida and like the the, the classic like difficult writers but I, I i'm inspired there's a there's a quote by fernando pessoa the modernist portuguese poet who said something about he was like a poet animated by philosophy okay and that's kind of like something that's I've tried to kind of take for myself, like, I don't have the rigor necessarily to be, like, a philosopher, but I, I can use it in this kind of creative way to try and, like, deal with these these things that are so universal and important to, like, kind of internal and external life. Yeah, and in a number of media, right, you talk about poetry, you talk about these little kind of dramas that you're writing. There's a poster that you've been working on uh, that you've got this... Uh, uh, which, yeah, the header. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, anybody who's listening, I would really encourage you to go check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes, of course, uh, to it. Uh, but it's a it's a really cool thing, and um, particu- I wanted to kind of focus our conversation on what seems to be a rather central interest of yours, this idea of the Faust myth, right? Um, mm-hmm. But before we get into that, uh, I, another thing that I'm increasingly interested in is sort of escaping the confines of academic institutions, right? And so mm-hmm. um, the idea that uh, what we do in academia is not unimportant is, in fact, so important that we should be able to do it outside of our own <laughs> kind of professional yeah. context, right? And so the, I think that you a really good example of this. So you are emerging out of a, a very kind of elite college, right? Where you, um, yeah. a, an elite liberal arts college where you're doing that kind of like heavy academic lifting and you're translating that for a life outside of that. So you don't work in academia at all, um, right? Uh, and so you, yeah. um, you, you kind of find other outlets for this. And so I kind of want to hear a little bit about I guess your process and your uh, inspiration or how it is you're relating <laughs> to academia here. Yeah. Uh, talking about process is one of the, something that's always difficult for me because it really, I, I feel like my brain is like so, so fragmented in like, it's like, I always, I've always taken a lot of inspiration from like, I guess kind of like a lot of the stuff about like the way that like, say the surrealists think of ideas in this kind of almost romantic notion of like, you know, these, these things that come and clash together and like form new things. And, and I always saw academia as kind of a part of that, particularly, you know, the media studies stuff that I came out of was kind of one of those departments where like a lot of what we would call, you know, quote unquote, continental philosophy and that kind of stuff was like, you know, they're like shoving it into that like niche liberal artsy scene um, that's doing kind of more experimental stuff. So when I was reading a lot of these like dense academic writers like Jacques Derrida and Deleuze and all these people that are infamous for being like so obtuse, I kind of took the approach of like, well, instead of seeing them obtuse because they're using like this rich academic stuff that's really dense, what if you read them as just avant-garde writers in a sense? What if the, like, because especially someone like Derrida, who's an influence on me, like he's doing weird stuff where like, my thesis is kind of inspired by stuff where he did, where he would have two essays that were in columns next to each other and seemingly unrelated, but always published together. And there's something very experimental going on there. It's very hard to explain. And that kind of was like a, a, a way of looking at it or also Walter Benjamin, who's a huge, huge influence on me and his kind of stuff like, especially, you know, his famous thesis on the concept of history is this super fragmentary, bizarre by any standard of academic 
writing. But like that was the kind of writing that really interested me. Yeah. Where it had this very strong academic educational kind of bent to it, but it wasn't academia. But, yes, yeah. it was outside of those kind of professional kind of institutional structures, right? There's this mm-hmm. publisher parish motivation behind <laughs> so much of what academic writing looks like. Um, and when you have someone like Walter Benjamin who precedes all of that, really, um, he's he's not kind of limited by those forms. And, and it becomes right. a, an artwork in itself. The, the criticism is kind of mm-hmm. art, right? And I've always said that yeah. about Lionel Trilling essays too. His essays, and I read this somewhere, and I can't remember where now, kind of belong to literature itself. They aren't necessarily just critiques of literature from the outside. They are kind of part of the yeah. ongoing dialogue. Um, and, and so, no, and I think you're part of that for sure. Um, and one thing I find really inspirational, I mean, you're sort of not an academic and yet you do creative jobs. I would like you to, uh, I'm sure there are lots of people who listen to the show want to do interesting things uh, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to give them give folks a uh, oh just sort of a menu of options about habits that you could do is do you have sort of a writing habit that you uh, go through or is it just sort of sporadic for you it, it's more sporadic than I would like uh, truth be told and I but part of that is also that like you've mentioned I do other you know things so between writing I do you know I draw um, I play a couple instruments and things like that. So, so my my approach is I'm like, well, I I'm really bad at keeping a regular writing schedule, so I'll just fill in my time with other creative stuff to make sure I'm always doing something. But um, yeah, it's it, and I think that that's actually you know as problematic as a lot of you know social media and the constant mediation is. There is there is some benefit to I think being able to surround oneself in. The creative projects of others so much that it, it there's always something inspiring always something interesting to look at to study to to bring into your own style to to question how they're doing what they're doing stuff like that um you know like the 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 abundance of pinterest boards now point <laughs> towards a, a, that kind of thing um so as long as you you know are using that inspiration in a way that's like motivating you to you know do something like the whole like you know like if you if you write even an hour a day or a writer kind of yeah mentality does 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 help with that yeah um, which I don't even know if I write an hour a day but I <laughs> I jot down in notebooks and stuff as much as I can yeah and like I, I always tell my students interested people are interesting people right if you're sort of engaged and <laughs> and learning yourself you're just going to be that much uh, of, of a more interesting person and you certainly are that um, and so Patrick I would just want to kind of jump right into um, the the meat of the show the subject. Which is Faust, right? And so you're um, you've published on your blog your your uh, excuse me your your senior thesis, which is actually mm-hmm. really cool. I can see how when you mentioned the Derrida thing, um, I can see <laughs> the inspiration in there. Now I hadn't like caught on to that the first time I kind of looked at it, but um, but yeah, it's very kind of it's an art object in of itself that does this really interesting analytical work. You could propose this um, kind of. Uh, almost like your version of Joseph Campbell's uh, mythic uh, hero structure for stories, Mm -hmm. you kind of identify a Faustian uh, story structure. And and so do you want to talk us through that a little bit as much as you can remember off the top of your head um, and and talk about about what it is that that, oh, I suppose that that, um, that that myth means to the modern world? Because I think you want to make the case that it's we're like swimming in Faustian <laughs> um, mm-hmm. stories. And so, yeah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, 
Well, part of part of my approach to it comes from Marshall Berman, who is a Marxist sc- scholar who wrote very heavily. He was kind of really interested in the idea of like re-grasping modernity in the 60s and 70s and like what it means to be modern. And he has a book called All That Is Solid Melts Into Air, which is a, it's actually a, a really wonderful book. Um, and he talks about, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. He talks about like Dostoevsky and the Russian modernist tradition and uh, Robert Moses, like redeveloping New York. And But he starts with Faust and he starts just talking about the Goethe version of the Faust myth. And he basically says, like, this version of Faust that comes out of the German Romantic period is like the Ur myth of modernity and it is explicitly modern um, in what it's telling. And he says that earlier versions like the Christopher Marlowe Elizabethan version have kind of elements of this. So I was really interested in this. I kind of tried to go a little bit more of a step into structuralism and kind of then post-structuralism and so on and so forth and kind of look at like what are the actual elements of a story that could make it quote-unquote Faustian rather than, you know, like quixotic, for example, or something like that. Yeah. Which I think what's interesting is a lot of these kind of mythic tendencies that we say, oh, it's this kind of story, this kind of story, all like sort of reflect one another. Um, But if you look at Faust in modernity, like especially Goethe's Faust, it's all about someone realizing that their internal development can only happen through like external changes to the world almost like every version of the faust story has when he sells his soul to the devil and works with mephistopheles he's he becomes a global entity he travels around the world with mephistopheles to see what's going on and in in goethe's version he quite literally like brings in the modern era where mephistopheles invents paper money okay and like he gives it to the emperor of germany he like tears apart this like gothic world structure and gothic city and rebuilds it um and one of the essential points of the faustian myth that particularly i took from berman is the idea that what makes faustian development so interesting the faustian tragedy so interesting is that it's not actually this like moralistic tragedy in the way that it's usually portrayed where it's like oh this this guy cared more about glory and power than you know being a good person so he gets damned for eternity it's really much more about the way that uh development faust in goethe's version at least is developing the whole world to make it a better place Mm. he's moving out of this like feudal repressive gothic tradition into the modern age but at the same time he's constantly confronted with the values of the feudal world that he's leaving behind even if they weren't you know achieved by the feudal world are constantly haunting him as he's moving away from it. Like he he there's a scene in part 2 where he literally like there's this two the, these two old people this like couple that live in this little village and they won't like give their land to him and it's the only piece of land he hasn't redeveloped yet. And they are the like idyllic like example of like medieval christian morality mm-hmm. where they're like they they take in wanderers and the shipwrecked and they feed them and they treat them well even though they're not like you know super educated or high class or or they don't have any of the bourgeois values that faust is bringing in and he says to mephistopheles like just get rid of them and get me their land because i have to develop it like i can't we can't have old values looming over us in this way 
And of course, Mephistopheles goes and like kills them. And Faust is like, why did you do that? And Mephistopheles is like, what did you think was going to happen? Like, this is <laughs> this is how like this change you're looking for is determined. So it's it's a much more complicated tragedy than simply this like, oh, it's like this guy who wants money and power and glory and doesn't embrace God that yeah. I think is often, you know, the kind of simplistic view of it. Yeah, and you you specifically refer to him as the Faustian hero, this figure in this mm-hmm. in this myth, not just in Faust itself, not in Goethe, not just in Goethe's Faust, but in the way that this myth re- reproduces itself yes. uh, in the modern world. You refer to this figure as a hero, right? And so it isn't this mm-hmm. uh, this kind of morality tale, the simplistic morality tale, yeah. as you say. Yeah, that's great. Um, keep going. Well, and and kind of moving on from that, it, it becomes really interesting how the Faust story is used. Right, both like in the 20th century, it becomes this like super important story that is retold from many perspectives, including both you know uh, liberal and socialist movements that use it explicitly as a critique of fascism. Most famously, Thomas Mann and Klaus Mann, incidentally, both wrote stories that used the Faust myth as like this example of you know Germany selling its soul to mm. what becomes fascism. But there's also socialist versions that used Faust as a springboard into like socialist utopianism because Faust, in Goethe's Faust, when he dies at the very end, it's like Mephistopheles, he's blind and Mephistopheles is using these spirits to dig his grave and he hears it and he thinks this is the development that is going to like allow us to live on the ocean and like no longer have uh, problems in terms of like land and it will become this utopian dream and Faust says like if this if this development is what occurs it will be finally the moment I stop striving for anything because I will have achieved enough and so there are several versions from like communist writers who wrote like a their own like part three of Faust where they talk about that world after after the fact of like like Faust leaving behind his role as developer and becoming one of many people in this like total kind of democratic world that like the development has finally been achieved. Um, And then at the same time, there's also, you know, fascist appropriation of German Germanic culture where they try to turn Faust into an explicitly nationalistic myth where they kind of invert it, where Faust is like this development hero and Mephistopheles is the example of like Jewish decadence and greed um, which is kind of ironic, especially given that Goethe was like not like not always in the best way, but he was trying to be like an internationalist in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. He saw culture as something that was internationally valuable rather than belonging to any one like nation or something like that. But but it keeps popping up in all these really weird, interesting ways about how we develop and how we're in a constant state of change, it seems now. And whether that the power of that change is going to accumulate in more and more singular figures or whether it's going to become something that is like controlled by everyone and, and changes life for, for everyone in a very much more positive way. And they're in constant tension with each other. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and I think that the, when you're talking about the, 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 
the Faustian myth as a uh, as a kind of story of developing the world for good. I mean, and so you know, one thing we like to talk about is pop culture on this. But this is sort of so Tony Stark in the Marvel Cinematic Universe yeah. is definitely a Faustian character, then, isn't he? He's yeah. Of, he has all these sort of grand designs on on improving the world through this new technological sorts of development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know if you've thought about that. Um, but uh, I haven't thought about Tony Stark specifically, but that's a really good point. Because I think, especially the way that Marshall Berman describes him is explicitly, he says, Faust is the developer. Yeah. That is his, is his archetype. Is he's, he's like this modernist developer. Um, whether that means he's working under socialism or capitalism, like it's it's the man of the, the big designs that yeah. he's going to see through with like, all this, all all of the the wonders of modernity. Yeah. But so yeah, like Tony Stark's definitely that. And 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 I want to save a, a section here in a little bit, so we don't want to dwell on this right now, because this is a myth that we see reproduced in, is at least a sort of metaphorical uh, inspiration mm-hmm. for a lot of of our culture today. And so yes. I want like bander back a, a little bit, uh, some some examples of where you see this playing out. But we'll hold on to that. Right, but right, just right. to uh, and you don't have to answer this question. I just am posing the question to annoy Michael Farmer. Um, what do you think of the DC universe? I'm just kidding. Uh, Michael <laughs> Farmer thinks I talk about that too much on the show, uh, and he was giving me crap about it on Twitter. So, um, but anyway, so the. Uh, um, Back to the topic at hand here. That was for you, Michael. I hope you liked it. Um, but I want to kind of go into, uh, since you brought up like socialism and, and uh, Marx here a little bit, you have a, an interesting thing about the sinful dialectic on, on your blog. <laughs> yeah. um, can you explain what you're trying to do with that and, and sort of what it's about? Because it seems somehow related to this. Yeah. So, yeah, that's definitely a more like weird creative piece. Yeah. Um, Which is what's awesome that, about it. Yeah. <laughs> and... Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think I use a Faust quote in there, but I don't even, like, really directly, like, say that it's about Faust. But, yeah, it's, it's, that was, I, I was rereading, as I mentioned before, Walter Benjamin, huge influence on me. I was reading his, on the concept of history. And I was reading uh, the Michael Lowry book. I think it's Michael Lowry who wrote it. The, his, he has a book called Fire Alarm that's, like, a kind of Talmudic reading where he goes, like, section by section and just, like, expounds on, like, what each section means. But I, so I was reading it and I was struck by, you know, the angel of history that Walter Benjamin is famous for describing is this seems so weirdly like another side of like a Mephistophelian Faustian figure, like because he's all about, you know, maybe this idea of progress that we have is actually kind of not the way to advance. Maybe he described he kind of inverts the Marxian thing where like Marx says, you know, we, we've got to stoke the 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 train that moves forward and he says maybe class struggle is actually the passengers fighting up to the front to pull the brakes on it Mm. and it 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 becomes this weird thing where it's like on the one hand it's about kind of stopping this monstrous ongoing destructive form of progress like quote-unquote progress but at the same time it kind of requires its own you know faustian energy to it. it it requires this kind of realization that you still have to like put into all this like Mephistophelian force into it. This kind of, there's a, there's a sense that some sort of transgression has to happen. Some sort of major development that's going to change the world as a whole. And the whole structure we live in as a whole is going to shift dramatically. So it's this weird thing where I felt like, you know, the devil and the angel become kind of one in this very weird way where like the devil is 
if the devil is kind of moving forward and just tearing down things that are in its way, and the angel is looking back and trying to reconstruct what's value is lost, they that you kind of need both of them if either one is really going to matter mm. in any sort of way of looking at how we're going to change things for the better, even if it comes at a, a significant cost. And kind of one of the big themes of Faust is in a way like, it's no longer a question of what will be done. It's a question of how things will be done. And I think you need both the kind of angel and the devil. There's a pact being made with both of them in a weird way. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, I mean, a, a question that I've been pondering about my own opinions of the world here lately is, do I believe in progress, right? And, and yeah, so, that's a weird question. Yeah, and, and so I, because often people will throw my politics into progressive uh, buckets, <laughs> and I'm not, that, I've, that's never sat well with me for some reason. Yeah. And so, uh, and I'm not even sure I believe in progress because of this, of what you're sort of getting at. Um, it seems like every step forward brings with it a destructive step right and so i'm not sure that Mm -hmm. it's just creating new sort of tensions right and new and maybe this is coming right out of the dialectic so let me quote from your your piece and by the way um patrick sent me a whole bunch of links to specific essays in his blog i recommend you read the whole blog but i will put specific links that he sent me up and and this one you'll you'll find on the show notes just go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com find the show notes for the show and you should see links there I'm usually pretty good about that. I think I forgot last week. but um, So in this case, um, as, as Jerusalem is established in remembrance and reparation, so it becomes a mechanism for destruction. Slavery is replaced by an industrial imprisonment apparatus. Barbarity replaces barbarity. This is what must be done away with. Should sin be a departure from virtue, then surely the leap forward would be sin. Uh, so is, is that sort of what you're getting at there? Is that there... Is this sort of an anti-progressive statement, manifesto? Yeah, it's, yeah in a way. And it, I mean, this always becomes, th- this is like a huge like point of conflict for me as well, where I'm like, in a sense, the only way to change anything is kind of this idea of moving forward. But it's also, the, I think it's really a struggle with that, like, what does that mean? And what does that mean in terms of what, what track are we on and is there always another way to think about what moving forward is and something I struggle with is I think you know when I think again Benjamin talks about you know the the tiger's leap forward of of that that is what Marxism is it's this tiger's leap forward but it's into an unknown forward like an unknown progress that isn't just this like mechanized you know certain kind of positivist you know, capitalist scientist kind of like view, worldview. It has much more. It has much more to do with faith in a way than engineering, um, right? Than, this isn't. Yeah, it's yeah, it's messianic to him. Yeah, um, in a very particular way. And but at the same time, what I feel like is like that messianic leap is also a devilish one. And like, like there's a weird thing where like to escape this to escape the virtues and the problems of our current Faustian modernity, there's still ironically a Faustian step that has to be made to do that in in a very strange way. Um, Yes. But it's, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's almost the question of like, can Faust become, can, can we all become Faust rather than there being one person or like this kind of pseudo academic, you know, 
council of Fausts who, who determine what progress is for us kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Democratize Faust. Yeah, and so I guess within within the quote-unquote capital L F left, there's a, uh, you know, the anarchist sort of school, right, that you're sort mm-hmm. of uh, maybe advocating for there a little bit. Um, yeah. And actually, part of it, what you're reminding me about, this leap into the future, like an unknown, unengineered future that's based kind of on faith. Um, yeah. A movie that I'm sort of I've taught last year and I'm still obsessed with. I just can't get it out of my head. Is Children of Men? Um, I don't know if you've seen that I, movie. I am absolutely ashamed to say I've still never seen that movie. As much as I I know I would absolutely love it, and it it totally deals with everything that I think is interesting. I think it does. And, and one one thing that sort of happens is. Um, the the base the basis of the story is that for some reason we don't really know why um, people have just stopped being able to reproduce and so the world is mm-hmm. just kind of winding to a close and it's just erupting into all this violent chaos um, as people are just sort of scrambling not for diminished resources because there's fewer people you know and so there isn't yeah. it isn't that but for whatever reason the the panic at the end of the world is causing us to be really barbaric to each other mm-hmm. and um, and for there's a uh, a woman who's a prostitute who Im- somehow miraculously has a baby, right? And so, yeah. um, and so, Clive Owen's character is kind of tasked. He finds himself just drawn into this task of getting her out of England onto some um, boat where there's the human project, where there's this uh, uh, p- potential salvation, but we don't really know mm-hmm. what happens, right? Um, but all throughout that movie you have people trying to help this woman along to get out of England right and they're like mm-hmm. throwing themselves on the grenade to make it happen I mean n- not yeah. literally in this case but um, um, but metaphorically just kind of sacrificing themselves for that potential right and so it, it's w- one of the moving things about that movie for me is the fact that these people are willing to literally die um, for the this unknown future right uh, to maintain mm-hmm. hope um, throughout this unknown future uh, and and it, it's that kind of messianic um, yeah. uh, unengineered leap of faith is, is really interesting and and so is that for you like the way out of this this angel devil dialectical coin yeah it, it's it's hard to it's it's hard to say like I I, I struggle with it definitely especially I I come from a background that's not any, you know, traditional uh, theologic, you know, kind of thing. I went to Catholic school. Not my family is Catholic, though. It was just like the best school that we had around happened to be a Catholic school and stuff like that. But at the same time, like I, I have a very, you know, the, the, the thinkers that I'm drawing from have, have a very strong theological bent to them. Yeah. I think they're like, there's a, you know, the Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas has a quote about, you know, faith, faith not being about whether God does or does not exist. It's about the question of can, can love go unrewarded in a way that is still like meaningful? Like, is it, it like, can we believe in an unrewarded love towards like other people? And that's like something that is kind of, I think, at a heart, at a, a very important part to what's going on here. Like the idea that, you know, in this in this dystopian vision of this film, like it, it, people would throw themselves on a grenade for someone that they don't really know in in for the sake of this kind of like hope, um, and I think that faith 
there's a question of like, can we you can or not use faith? I don't think you should like utilize faith per se, but like, is there a kind of faith that points towards you know the real realization that even if there's going to be a human cost or an element of tragedy to whatever we need to do to revolutionize society to change society for the better, maybe that human cost can be something other than you know the the massive amount of bodies that build up the 20th century that are mm-hmm. you know the bones that build like these big uh dams and canals in both you know united states projects and the soviet union can it be something other than the mechanized destruction of the fascist machine like mm. realizing that there's a human cost but there can be a different kind of cost that that isn't just this you know throwing of human bodies into something that's so destructive and like yeah it's it's a it's difficult and i i move all the time between like yeah like absolute kind of non oh like moving between you know this kind of like uh, it's not even moral at this point it's just like <laughs> just, like just do what you can and then at the other time being like no there's like this deep like value to our history that like tinges progress and like i, I it's it's difficult yeah, it's very difficult. Well, and I guess this, since you brought up sort of God, let's kind of get to the the, the genesis or the beginning of uh, the of the Goethe and Faust story, which you know you know way better than I do, obviously. But uh, I mean, I kind of do know that it's sort of it's alludes to almost it's it's kind of modeled on the Job story a little bit, right? You've got yeah, no, but yeah, you've got the Satan and the and the God and God <laughs> making sort of a almost bet a deal, you know? yeah. Um, and so, but. Faust in this story is kind of for me. So I'm part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. He is mm-hmm. sort of the ideal Christian humanist in a way. At, at the beginning of the story, he is going through learning that is aimed at the proper in, in the proper way. It's aimed at a worship of God and, and an understanding of God. So learning about the world is part of like a worshipful worshipful practice, right? Mm-hmm. And, and sort of um, appreciating all all the varieties of God's creation, even human human creation. Um, and so he becomes kind of uh, at, under the influence of Mephistopheles. He becomes kind of uh, impatient with that, if, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. And he wants to like do something quote unquote practical. And that's that's the deception as he kind of turns his his desires away from the. He's doing developmental work like you said but aimed mm-hmm. with the wrong desire um, and, and I'm sure you could say this better than I can what do you think about the 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 motivating uh, incident at the uh, beginning of the story and what does it have to do with the rest of it uh, it, it it is pretty interesting like that because it is this scene where yeah it has this job kind of like you know I bet I could tempt this guy away from salvation. No, like hit the very fact, like the very foundations of his reason is like in tune with God kind of like yeah. thing. He's using, edu- he's using learning say- and education for the right reasons. And the, he's tempted away from that. He's mm-hmm. using learning and education for the wrong reasons. Right. And that's kind of the turn, um, but go ahead. Yeah. I, I, I think I would push back a little bit it's in Goethe's version specifically about the idea that Faust is motivated in the wrong way. Okay. Particularly, um, but though, though I, I mean, I'm speaking maybe in a more broader, like modernist conception rather than like a theological one here, because, because again, turning to like Berman's conception, he has this thing where 
he kind of says like, what's funny about Faust is that Faust actually becomes a legitimately better person under Mephistopheles' influence. Because mm. Faust, de- what, what's funny is that like, in as much as it's all about like modernity and the development of the modern world, Faust is never really a capitalist. Like he doesn't care about like developing for the sake of value or money. That's only like Mephistopheles says that he's like, Oh, you can make a lot of money off of this. And he's like, no, I don't care. What I care about is the development of the human project. Um, that's, so that's it, the name of the boat that's saving the woman at the end of, uh, <laughs> at the end of, <laughs> oh, really? I think it is. That's the human. Pro- I think it's called the human project. Um, yeah. go ahead. Oh my God. All right, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like it's, it's weird. And, and partially because at the end of Goethe's version, Faust isn't damned is a very interesting thing. Yeah. Faust is actually saved because he, because his, his deal with Mephistopheles is specifically, if I ever stop and say, I am content now, let me move no further. That's when you can take me, like you can kill me and take my soul. So the ending, as I kind of mentioned before, is like, He's blind and he thinks that he hears like the penultimate development of human progress. He says, if that's what this is, then I'm fine. Like you can take my soul. I don't care. Humanity is and has reached utopia. So like Mephistopheles is like, aha, I've got you. But then the devils come down. They're like, no, you didn't because he didn't like he was still striving for that progress, which you denied him is what like the angels say. Like he was still striving for that ultimate utopian development that you tricked him into think was happening, but wasn't. So he died striving and therefore is saved. Okay. Um, which is a very interesting, like, which is really funny because I think a lot of people know, like, Goethe's Faust is famous for, like, most people just know the first act, which is much more built around, like, the, the, the Gretchen tragedy and, like, the kind of more traditional, like, story that's more like the Marlowe one where he's, like, going around and using magical powers and finding love and lust and, like, all these things. And... Um, and the, the Marlowe one ends with like the, the much more like kind of common conception where like at the end he realizes that he's damned and like demons come out and tear him to bits. Right. Right. Like like it's a much more like, like Elizabethan like version of hell. Um, but it's, it, it is weird because like Berman kind of says it's, it's this weird thing where it, it inverts it to, it's like the path to heaven is paved with bad intentions almost. (laughs) Like it's weird. Like, um, that's but that's yeah, interesting. It, <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's it's like Job, where like, the very like when Faust gives into the temptations, he kind of does develop kind of some of what we would, I think, you know, is kind of in part the the Christian humanist project, where it's not just learning for your own good, which is what what Faust finds so dissatisfying. It's it's the desire to realize that like my internal world, like my internal development can only really happen through an exteriorization of it and a realization that I'm part of like this world that needs to also have some sort of change occur. And that's, that's actually something about the Faustian hero that's often overlooked is that he's one, it's the first example of an academic hero. Uh He's he he always begins locked in a study with a thousand books talking about you know Aristotle and stuff, especially Christopher Marlowe. Like the first three pages are like one long monologue that's all about like weird Latin studies. Like it's it's so <laughs> so boring. But um, it, yeah, it always begins with him. So just like like I've learned all this stuff, but I'm dissatisfied because he he the second thing is he's he's a hero who's driven by anxiety, but 
not in the way that like Hamlet is like because Hamlet is like frozen by anxiety for Faust it's always the feeling like like am I doing the right thing that he he looks away and he says maybe I shouldn't be doing this and then he looks back and doubles down on it yeah. and it's like that's like what he's constantly doing because like in Marlowe's version it's much more like he's constantly having these monologues where he's like but wait should I pray to God instead and then like a literal angel will come down and be like yes you should do this he's like no no wait like <laughs> let me rethink this it's like come on dude like <laughs> like what more what more do you need but yeah it's yeah, wait, yeah. go ahead um Oh, I, but I, I was going to say, like, an interesting connection maybe to Benjamin again is Berman has a little section on Benjamin, not which he doesn't directly tie to Faust, but he says something about like Benjamin's interest in modernity is also like that, where he he's constantly drawn to you know Paris arcades and and nightclubs and this, this thriving urban modern life, but he also has this tension of like, but like. There's something there that's good, but it's it's not enough, and we we need to break with it. But he always goes back to it. And Berman says Benjamin is someone who wants to be saved, but not yet. <laughs> there, there's 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 just something that's got to be done before salvation occurs, and that's kind of what the Faustian anxiety is, in a in a really weird way. Okay, and that's a great setup. So um, I think two things I want to talk about, um, and then I want to talk. I'm, I want to save room at the end because you directed a, a, a stage version of this yourself. And I want to kind of talk about some of the decisions <laughs> yep. that, you, that you put into this at the end. But um, before we get there, though, so th- this is, I, I, kind of, I think I'm compelled by the fact this is kind of an Ur myth for modern, the modern world in many ways. Yeah. A lot of any kind of political project you can think of um, has its sort of. Uh, can be applied uh, to or can be seen through the lens of the sort of Faustian bargain, right, in the way that Goethe yeah. writes it. And so, um, but also it inspires a lot of artworks, right, and a lot of mythologies yes, of the definitely. 20th century. Um, and so and often it's in the form of an artist. And so for me, it's like Robert Johnson and the, the being at the crossroads, right? That's, yeah. that's clearly... Um, almost like taken from the pages of, 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 of a Faust story, right? Um, what are some other uh, versions of this that you think are sort of important in helping us understand the way we interpret this myth uh, in our current time? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, one, one that's just like I personally love, just because it has a fantastic album, is I, I mentioned Tom Waits at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But he has an album called The Black Rider mm-hmm. that's... It's a play, Originally, right? uh, Yeah, it's a musical yeah. that was written with William S. Burroughs, and uh, I cannot remember the director's name for the life of me. You can actually find like videos of the original production, which is in German, though. Like The, the music is in English, but the, the actual mm. script is in German. But it's it's actually based on kind of another German folktale that's like maybe an influence on Faust that, that has a little bit more of the Robert Johnson kind of version where... It's it's a lot more about the way that like selling your soul to the devil comes back in like this ironic inversion of like the wish is what does you in yeah like the monkey's paw kind of thing. sort of thing right yeah it's it's a, it's that monkey's paw version of it it's like that's really kind of the more it's less the the like the big like modernist development version it's a <laughs> lot more about the personal folkloric version um, and I just think it's a great album and. When we talk about you know my version, like it had a big influence on like my aesthetic of choice of it. Um, also, I mean, the, there's also the classic, you know, Devil and Daniel Webster. Yeah, is a is a very like fun kind of kind of take on it, which also like kind of fun like little like 
version of, you know, modernity with like the idea of like the law in this lawyeristic kind of kind of sense, which is also, you know, Kafka, I think, is very Faustian oh, in many ways. Oh, that's interesting. Not directly per se, but I mean, I mean, maybe he had some direct influence. I, he, he was, you know, a German speaking um, Czechoslovakian uh, Jew. So like I, I, I'm. I mean, that's the thing is like, it's like Goethe is like, so especially in German culture, he is like the, like, you know, like he is, he is German culture in so many ways. Yeah. That like, I mean, He's more Shakespeare than Shakespeare, say. right? Uh, in, for, yeah, for Germany, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's hard to say if like, like with any of those kind of stories that come out of that tradition, it's like, well, it probably was influenced in some way. And like, we, we don't really know. Yeah. But like. Yeah, I mean Kafka's interesting. I mean, I, I love Kafka and I'm trying to one of the problems is that Kafka doesn't really allow for much of a metaphysic at all, right? Um, mm. everything is so material with him that there doesn't ever seem to be an there is no out at the end of the play, right? Um, for him. Yeah. And and so um, but I can totally see how um, you have characters strewn throughout Kafka's work that are in this sort of fit to to do things right to develop right mm -hmm. but without the the benefit of a god or a devil right <laughs> and yeah. i think that is yeah, yeah. that is really yeah. interesting about kafka that's one really cool yeah. way to think about it um yeah and and i i brought up you know tony stark before but i think that when yeah. you see someone like him he very much embodies the kind of tragic hero like the well-meaning guy who keeps screwing things up by the things he's trying to <laughs> do right and and yes he is inventing these amazing new inventions but everywhere along the way, creating new problems that we have to yeah. then deal with, which is sort of the anti-progressive reading of what mm -hmm. he's doing. Um, but then I, you think about, because there seems to be like a self-awareness of his hubris, right, in those stories. Um, and mm -hmm. when you think about the Ayn Randian sort of hero, developmental hero, yeah. um, that's someone who accepts the Faustian bargain as entirely a good thing, right? There is no sort of sense yeah. of irony about uh, about his his. Uh, yeah, activity. well, like, a Randian hero is someone who's like, like, like Mephist. Like, I feel like if like Mephistopheles came down, like they, they would be like, I don't even need you to do this. Like, <laughs> like they like they'd be like, I can do this like just on my own. Like, yeah, like, like they, they don't even accept like the metaphysical like bargain element of it. Like. Yeah, it's which is like which is almost like the the real worst thing because like that like that's the thing is I'm like I think like even if we're gonna like even if we're not going to try if we're gonna try and escape progress like like I'm not quick to def like to denounce Mephistopheles in a way like I'm like I think like because like in in the the simple dialectic piece I said something like you know there's a quote from the Goethe version I used where he says something like you know keep the devil tight once lost he will not be caught again or something yeah and i i think i say like what is truly bizarre is that in a way like the whole task is to like catch the devil again like you have to kind of like like catch the devil to jump off this track like you have to you have to get that like almost nietzschean will to power kind of thing going like which I, that's actually another like maybe really faustian thing is is just nietzsche like his whole writings, yeah. his whole understanding of the world is very, very Faustian in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, I can see that for sure. Um, and my favorite TV show, if you listen long enough, you know, is Hannibal. I love that show. Um, <laughs> the The relationship that they set up between Will Graham and Hannibal um, also has this Mephistophelian, um, um, Faustian sort of relationship there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, and I think that there's many ways in which 
that myth has inspired artworks that still speak to us, right? And so there's something about how you identify that almost as like a parallel version of the hero's journey by Joseph Campbell that has obviously inspired star Wars and all the, and and a great number of um, cultural productions in my lifetime and throughout the 20th century. But there's this other um, or myth that kind of does something alongside of it. And sometimes there's intersections of course, but, but there does seem to be distinct in some ways. And and that's like in my thesis, I didn't really go into it that much, but I talk about a little bit like, I, when I, I talk a little bit about like Kafka and I also talk about like, I, I was also struck like the way that we refer to these things like Faustian, Kafka-esque, Quixotic, they all seem to intersect in very interesting ways and then diverge in interesting ways. Like Faust and Don Quixote are like, again, almost like opposite sides of the same coin. Mm. Like Don Quixote is like the precursor to modernism. It's like the foundation of the modern novel. And it's all about this guy who was on this journey to like change the world through his like weirdly like idyllic virtues that have no place in the world that he wants to be in. Yeah. And it that like that's like a weird like kind of Faustian thing at the same time. Like they, they both reflect each other in like this like weird way as Faust and Kafka kind of reflect each other in this weird way. And like I so I don't think that I think it I do think it is kind of reductionist when people are like, oh it's, it's the hero's journey. Like it's like well yeah. it's like it there's like a very much wider lens than that. And like yeah. You know, as much as, like, uh, I am I do kind of consider myself in, like, this Marxian sphere, but I have, like, I, I'm always, like, I do, like, post-structuralism, and I, like, I like <laughs> Jung. Like, I actually do find Jung a very, like, interesting, re- like, read yeah. in a lot of stuff, as, as problematic as it can be, and especially, like, and I think, you know, I'm, like, by no means interested in what Jordan Peterson has to say. I think he's... <laughs> kind of inane and like doesn't doesn't have a whole lot that's of significant value but i do think like you can read jung and like take away some pretty valuable stuff in terms of approaching creativity culture and art and like there are other thinkers like james hillman who i quote in my thesis that kind of kind of takes the jungian model and says you know like when you think of yourself mythically by nature you have to think of yourself as a part of a larger world that you have some place in connecting to and seeing how it changes Mm -hmm. and that yeah like there's there's more complicated readings of these things than i think sometimes both pro and anti be like sides want to admit yeah yeah there's a a faustian way of seeing jordan peterson then right i mean his his (laughs) whole project is one of uh uh, that kind of resembles that in some ways too um and so and that's another uh, application of this. So one way is like looking at the Faust myth and seeing how it embodies in cultural productions. Another way is kind of using it as a lens to kind of understand uh, the world as it exists, like p- through political uh, machinations, for example. And so one thing that kind of stood out to me as I was thinking about this the last few days was that I have always felt like the um, the religious right um, has made a kind of Faustian bargain with the Republican Party and, and conservatism, right? Um, and it's really um, being been tested in the Trump era, right? And, and so I, yeah. I think that when you see someone like, I mean, just for the sake of shorthand, and this is way too simplistic, but Jerry Falwell Jr. and his you know, affixation to, uh, to Trump, mm-hmm. to Trump's posterior there. Um, I think that there's, there's definitely some sort of deal with the devil <laughs> sort of, uh, way of, of reading, yeah. uh, re- reading that relationship. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. 
I mean, as I mentioned, like I, uh, I, I, I speak as like a, a sort of an outsider to 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 much of what is you know happening within Christian community, um, which by no means like I think there's so much that's valuable. I think it's a shame when like yeah. so-called progressive uh, so-called progressive people like talk <laughs> about it in like this disparaging way. But yeah, it is. It's like I, I I've actually gotten. One of my this is that it's one of the reasons I got into this podcast. To be honest, was I was just like, like the way that this discussion of like what what kind of politics does like Christianity have inherent in it, yeah. and how is that opposed to some of the the deals that have been kind of perpetuated and made, and like uh, kind of like someone. There's another podcast I listen to called Owls at Dawn, which is by two kind of fallen evangelicals okay. that are philosophers and uh, on the left and they they were talking about like you know like the way that like evangelical christians are like you know when when all the stuff about the children who were separated from their families through illegal immigration they're like how can you say you come from the tradition of like isaiah and like like these people who are like falling on their knees screaming about injustice in like this such a powerful way like how can you possibly like be like no this is justified like because you know like rule of law under kings or something like that like it's like what like yeah. no that's yeah like and it it i i almost want to say like there's something again i i keep going back to marshall berman on this he he says that there's something there's like something that's worse than faustian that's pseudo faustian oh and that's where and that's where you he says that like ironically you know the the ussr it's pseudo Faustian because it's not even a tragedy. It's a farce because like when, when they build this huge, you know, they build this huge canal and they spend so many human lives to build it and it doesn't even get used for anything. It's just a big, like, it's just a big symbol that like doesn't have any foundation to it, which is like ironically worse than like the cost that, you know, these capitalists, and, and this is a Marx scholar saying this, he's, he's on the left. So like, he's saying like, what's the real like tragedy there is that it becomes farcical when like the tragedy of like capitalist development modernity, like at least is like trying to produce like this usable thing, even if it gets subsumed or devalue. And that's almost what Trump is like. It's like, how get like, he doesn't even align with like, you know, these kind of superficial, like ev evangelical values. Like he doesn't even care about that. Like, so why are you aligning with him when like, it's just such a big symbol that you're investing this labor and energy into that isn't even giving you like, you know, an, a, a, like a power through the Faustian bargain. Yeah. It's just like, it's like, it's like if like, you're, you're not going to have an interesting tragedy if it was just Mephistopheles being like, what if you just gave me everything and you just sit here and I'll do what I want. Yeah. And like, 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 Faust, and Faust doesn't even get like a say or like don't do anything with the power. Like, yeah, it, it's, it, it's pseudo Faustian to me in that, that kind of way. It, like it's yeah. like, and the fact that it feels like a farce it, that totally makes some mm -hmm. sense to me. Um, I know my own reading of this situation is that there's a, uh, a way in which this is sort of out of a panic. Uh, this kind of, mm -hmm. uh, in, they've internalized this kind of persecution progress or process yeah. or, or complex, excuse me, that they, <laughs> you know, are always, are always talking about. And, and, and so, and I think that they think that 
And it's probably true for now that under a Betsy DeVos Department of Education, for example, um, they aren't going to be enforcing particular Title IX rules in a way yeah. that they might that might compromise um, their Christian colleges, right? And so, but my fear—I mean, my prediction ultimately is going to be that that's going to there's going to be such a backlash against that it's just ultimately going to hasten <laughs> the the, uh, yeah. the the intensity with which and they actually might are going to create a kind of persecution um, of their own if you want to use that term it's a, a stretch of the term I know um, but um, and so one other thing so that fascinates me about this is that all along I've always kind of felt like the Christian rights um, affixing itself to the Republican Party has been kind of farcical and, and stupid, right? And it always felt very mm. Faustian to me, uh, or maybe pseudo-Faustian. <laughs> I didn't have that term, but I think that works too. Um, and so, but when Trump steps into that position, there's still an unwillingness to drop it. There's no. There's an unwillingness to ask forgiveness and break the connection, right? And in, in one of your dialogues that you write, and I, w- I will put this on the... Uh, on the um, on the, the show notes for this, you ask Mephistopheles, <laughs> the notion of a diabolic contact, contract is itself somewhat paradoxical, isn't it? Marlowe's Faust is a difficult character to sympathize with because he should be able to turn away from his deal with the devil at any moment, but he never does. The power of the devil is only actualized with the absence of God. Faust could find his salvation by simply praying to God for forgiveness and forsaking his pact. The breaking of of the contract in and of itself would save Faust from the very repercussions of breaking the contract, right? So that makes sense, right? Um, But Mephistopheles says, uh, well, that's only if you assume that asking for forgiveness is simply a matter of speaking the words, forgive me. Once one uses magic to summon a devil, one encounters a power that defines their existence. And so do you want to talk a little bit about what you were going for there? I know that you weren't yeah. writing about this situation, but I really feel like it applies. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there is, there's, there's, I think, an older, because I wrote like several of what I call, the, like those were like kind of early like rumblings of what would become my thesis in a way. Um, there's one of them where I actually do talk about Trumpism with okay. with, with with Mephistopheles in this in this way, um, which I had some fun with the idea of like you know Mephistopheles being like 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 Trump isn't even good enough for me kind of like thing, but um, <laughs> yeah, like there's something about the notion of kind of the way that my my encounter encounters with a certain form of Christianity where like. There's that dissatisfaction of the idea that, like, you know, for like forgiveness is really just this, like, you know, oh, I, I pray to God and say forgive me, and you know, it's washed away, it's all clean, which, which I mean, is certainly an element of Christ, of the Christian spirit, but like, it's supposed to be something beyond that. It's not just the words forgive me, right? It's a, it's a very deep connection and understanding of personal responsibility in the face of God, mm-hmm. and in the face of this this greater uh, community, which again, turning to Walter Benjamin from, he's writing from a weird mix of Kabbalistic, like Judaism with um, Marxism, but like the idea that like the messianic spirit is much more driven in part by our responsibility to our community and the values of the past that we've never achieved and that utopian spirit. And that's like the messianistic turn, right? Um, uh, I, I remember the radical theologian Peter Rollins, who's kind of a character, said something about like, you know, he was asked by a more conservative Christian, like, 
do you affirm the resurrection? And his answer was, no, because every single moment of my life where I turn away from those in need and those who are suffering, I can't affirm the, re- like, the resurrection in that moment. But when I do help those in need, that is the, those are, like, there's no way to be affirming the resurrection constantly in your entire life while, like, suffering is occurring. Yeah. We can only have it in the moments where we're in, in contact with the needs of others. So believing and, and doing are sort of um, yeah. Yeah, embodiment almost, yeah. Which, but then again, that kind of turns into a Faustian thing. Yeah. In Goethe's Faust, he actually takes the Bible and he becomes dissatisfied with in the beginning was the word and he rewrites it to in the beginning was the deed. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's like this weird, it's like even when you're embodying the Christian spirit, it comes back. Like it, it's this, it, yeah, but like there's something about that. Like the, the notion of there being an almost, you know, I, I have a certain kind of like suspicion of ontology ontology i guess of like these broad claims of being but there is something about like being a religious kind of being that opens itself up to a transcendence that is still but it's transcendence in the world still like it's transcendence that comes again in this interaction with others in need that that is this you know that is the moment of resurrection that is the moment Mm. of the messianic utopia coming in to the you know heaven on earth kind of yeah, definitely read some Peter Rollins if you want to follow up on this. I think you're right about that. You know? yeah. um, and, and I just want to kind of continue with what you say. This kind of reminds me of Tolkien, um, and I don't know if, this, if, you, if that's intentional on your part. Um, but, uh, well, let me reread that. Well, that's only if you assume that asking forgiveness is simple a matter of speaking the words forgive me. Once one uses magic to summon a devil, one encounters a power that defines their existence. To accept that power once is to think about it eternally, right? Even if one renounces it, the possibility of that power colors life afterwards, what you say. And that very much reminds me of the ring of power um, and particularly its uh, hold on um, uh, Bilbo uh, at the end of uh, the first Lord of the Rings movie. I mean, he still has this like lust for it right yeah, and, yeah. and so and i feel like i've uh, always that, <laughs> i've always thought of that uh, just uh, go ahead uh, i i'm just like i i always remembered that as like because i was pretty young when the first lord of the rings movie and that was like what like more than the orcs or anything what terrified me the most was that scene in rivendell where like where he he just freaks out and he just ah, like a, yeah. like that was what terrified me yeah. as a kid it was like that yeah. that that lust that open like <laughs> raw desire for it that, yeah from a good guy right yeah and yeah and so, from a, from a, from a good guy yeah and like and that also comes from because like part of what my thesis was was i was arguing also that like the product process of artistic adaptation yeah is itself faustian yeah and that i and that kind of plays into that idea that like you know when when you make like you make a movie of something and whether or not the movie is in and of itself good or bad it will forever color your interpretation of what came before it. Um, I, I always think of like, there's like this kind of meme that like pops up, I guess in the Harry Potter community where there's like in the fourth book, like, you know, like there's a scene where I guess it says something like Dumbledore, like calmly turned to Harry and said like in a quiet voice, like, did you put your name in the goblet of fire? And in the movie, they always like freak out because Dumbledore, like, rushes over and screams like did you put your name in the goblet of fire and like they constantly have this meme of like comparing like the two reactions of it and it's like it's like in a way it's so irrelevant but like seeing the like once they've seen the movie you just can't let go like 
they both color each other yeah. forever. Like there's no like the entire foundation of the world of what you're comparing these two has changed. Yeah. And that's kind of like the thing of like, you know, if you were to summon a devil with magic, like even if you dispel it, like there's like the knowledge that like your entire world has the opportunity for summoning a, a devil that can do anything with magic is like a huge again like ontological shift about like what like the foundations of our place in the world yeah. are and that's kind of part of like what faust says is like you can't you, finding forgiveness is really complicated when part of finding forgiveness cannot be just a return to like the before yeah like that 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 option is gone like you can't just go back um and it's i mean that's kind of one of the things about like you know the idea of the fall like the falling and original sin and stuff it's like people who kind of interpret like forgiveness in the way of like oh we're like we're just trying to get back to the garden of eden it's like it's not that simple like it's it's more complicated like the idea of forgiveness of 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 accept like there's an acceptance of the nature of sin in us an acceptance that we can't just go back but also a need to realize that we can't just be like oh well you know like the world is like we made the world worse but like might as well like ride on that like yeah <laughs> have some fun with that like that, that's not the op- the right <clears throat> option either yeah you can't unring the bell right uh once the, yeah once they, that path was chosen, and, and it probably predates the Christian right, right, as we know it mm-hmm. in the, sort of the 80s with Jerry Falwell Sr. and, and you know, Pat Robertson and all that and the, whoever, yeah, the neocons. Um, there, there's a way in which um, that, is, uh, that allure of power is, is forever part of the Christian mm-hmm. experience, right? Even if you choose yeah. not to wield it, it's very option like colors your your view mm-hmm. of the world, right? And I think really then this is more of a, a warning to the Christian left, this emerging uh, source of political power in uh, mm-hmm. at least on social media. Uh, and, and so if that's actual power or not, I don't know. But um, yeah. Are, yeah, but whatever, that's another story. But the, um, uh, so in, in a way of uh, like just sort of reversing the polls about who you're supporting, you're still clamoring you're still summoning devils right uh there's still an association with a with a devil and so i think that that um that idea of progress i suppose Mm -hmm. um that this story calls into question um through your reading of it i think is a nice warning for um not not it's not just it's not just a condemnation of the christian right it's a nice warning for the christian left uh and and i think Mm -hmm. that's very interesting um maybe that's what maybe that's a way of kind of framing what I was trying to get at with simple dialectics is like, it's we're not at a point where we need to like summon new devils into existence. Maybe it's about grappling with the energies of the the ones that we already have in a sense, and and finding where that power leads and if there's an a tinge of the angelic that we yeah. can utilize there in that. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, I want, before we even get to the end, I want to invite you back as often as you want to come, Patrick. This has been one of the most interesting conversations <laughs> I've had in weeks. This has been great. Um, and so, but I do want to ask you about your play. Um, and so, you produced a, a stage version of this uh, at Vassar, right? And so, yes. um, what were the what was it you were going for? What what kind of representation did you uh, make? Like, what was your sort of creative yeah. option there? Um, well. With that version, that was a version of, that was the Marlowe version. Like, you can, like, 
you really can't you need Disney money to do the Goethe version like 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 there's a reason that it exists in like Germanic opera and that's it like like <laughs> like you need a big budget to like because like Goethe is throwing in you know like whole sets changing and like special <laughs> effects that are like nothing like um, but yeah I did a a version of the Marlowe one which was inspired like I kind of mentioned before like I saw a version of it at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And that version was, like, this weird, like, experimental one that was tinged by, like, theater of cruelty kind of stuff. I thought it was, like, absolutely fascinating. So I did a version on campus that was actually my first time directing anything. And it was a huge success, actually. And kind of the... I I didn't really want to put a moralizing twist on it in the usual way, partially because Marlowe's is so, so much more like a... And then he gets torn apart by demons at the end because he wanted money, kind of. Yeah. Like, it, it's a little simplistic if that's, like, your, like, go-to thing. Which, you know, the history of Christopher Marlowe is actually kind of interesting because he was, like, uh, pretty her- heterodox, kind of early atheistic kind of stuff. So, like, you, it's hard to say, you know, maybe there's an element of kind of satire to, like, the whole thing that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of fun... Like, it, it's it's a really, like, fun, like, weirdly, like, raunchy play where, like, Mephistopheles, it really leans into the Mephistopheles who's, like, the trickster and is, like, you know, weird. But it also has, like, these scenes where, like, you know, like, early, like, early on, like, Faust is, like, really considering, like, should I sign this? And Mephistopheles is, like, let's be serious here for a sec. You shouldn't do this. Like, he's, like, I can tell you, like... From my experience of eternal damnation, this is not a good call. He, like he gets like really serious for a moment, and then in, and then other times he's like you know like turning invisible and like pushing priests over and throwing food in the air and like everyone's freaking out and like yeah it's so I had a little bit more of like a carnivalesque kind of like theater of cruelty like I wanted to just kind of make it really weird and real ritualistic and aesthetically crazy so that it would kind of kind of playing with like that idea of like is there a way to provoke an authentic reaction that is because it's so audacious that what's happening on stage that like you can't like process it almost yeah um because we especially there's a scene where like he the seven sins come out and it's you know fun because it's like weird thing where lust is trying to seduce him and wrath is screaming about you know blood and it's like this really like crazy scene and so we did we had a lot of fun with that because like just like we were just i really just doubled down on the actors of like we're just trying to get the audience to be disturbed at this point just gross them out and like we did a thing where gluttony gluttony we just gave him a mayonnaise jar and we filled it with vanilla pudding so he would just be eating it like handfuls of it and and every time the audience would have this like oh like reaction to it that i was just like yes that that's what we're going for and, like and, rob zombies know, christopher Mar- rob zombies yeah, christopher yeah, marlowe's like, faust like, it, like this uh i i like to hope that it's a maybe a little bit more nuanced than maybe what rob zombie does but like yeah yeah a little bit yeah, like yeah. almost almost I like to think of it maybe in kind of what like some of the stuff David Lynch has been doing with like the revival of Twin Peaks where it's just like what is happening it's so like disgusting but it's aesthetically like fascinating and like that kind yeah. of thing was a little bit more <laughs> the vibe we were going for yeah but it was it was actually really su- successful like the first show you know 
we we had like a decent sized audience but not huge like it was on a thursday like people had classes and then it was packed the next two nights yeah and it like it was just so like pleasing to see people were like word of mouth being like go see the show it's like so especially because like another reason i didn't want it to be moralizing is like you know i don't think that you can escape from politics and art i think there is a lot of political stuff that happened in my show but i also was like you know political student theater can be a little like real like like oh we got what you were saying the first five minutes and like <laughs> kind of thing that i didn't want it to just be like you know i didn't want it to be like kind of like the easy like mephistopheles is trump and faust is the like the american dream like, like i didn't really want to go with something as like obvious as that yeah um yeah well yeah. And, and you gave me a, there was a really great review that someone wrote about the play and so i'll put that in the show notes there as well it was it was really cool yeah. so um yeah no and um i really really have enjoyed this uh conversation patrick this has been great uh i've learned a lot you kind of i mean pushed my thinking on a lot of things in really interesting ways too <laughs> and and as we were like talking uh it just occurred to me i an interesting i, I love the movie john wick i i just think that's the, oh, yeah, the best yeah. action movie and the third one I just saw a preview <laughs> for is about to come out and I was just sort of thinking about John Wick in this um, in this mode and it seems to me in that that movie everybody acts as Mephistopheles for everybody else like they're all sort of yeah, like trading yeah. that role off and it's a really interesting kind of variation on uh, on on the Faust journey there is no single Faust like everybody's their own everybody yeah. is both Faust and Mephistopheles for someone yeah the- that's that's very true like that's that's kind of like you know in my weird utopian socialist vision like <laughs> like because like Marx talks about like you know I, I, it's interesting because like Marx describes capital as like the unleashing of the forces of the underworld and stuff like in his more poetic moments. Oh yeah, he's very into but, the gothic. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, like like his his whole vision is like you can harness the power that capital is unleashed and make it into a communal power. Mm-hmm. And that like that is the the vision. It's a communal power. So like that's like like that's that's what we got to do. Like we got to realize like. Mephistopheles and Faust is, is in everyone and like it's got to become this communal thing it's like you can't just have the singular Tony Stark developer anymore like that's fascinating yeah and there's a whole like weird economy that 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 is enclosed yeah. in that world or right in in part two like where there's also like the homeless network yeah. of, <laughs> of like people like the underclass <laughs> yes that, John Wick is yeah. That John Wick is a weird, a weird comic book action movie. I have a friend who always is like, he's like, I just don't like it. Like, it, it just breaks my immersion when like this stuff happens. And I'm always like, dude, like, like you could just if you just replace John Wick with the Punisher, like it's it, like almost exactly the same. Like, like, like you're like, come on, like, but like, it, yeah. yeah. There, that's a Except- that's a really good point. I've never thought about that. Like, <laughs> that that really is a world where like everyone's, like doing like te- like tempting everyone else in all these weird directions and like or have you ever seen the movie Stardust? Uh no, I have not. It's this weird it's a movie that I really like. It's like this weird it's based off a Neil Gaiman novel very loosely. Okay. And it came out I think in the early 2000s and it's like it's like kind of like a a really like nice whimsical like fairy tale. And it has like Robert De Niro in it as like a pirate captain in the in a sky ship and like it's very like very whimsical like fantasy but it 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 really like leans into like this older style of like this is something else that like absolutely fascinates me that's in connection with faust it's like the tradition of like the idea of like fey 
and Faye having bargains to it, but it's the Faye bargain is like explicitly amoral. Like it's like you don't understand the morality of what's happening when you're like bargaining with a fairy or something like that in like old style like Lancelot myths and stuff like that. Yeah. But it, it it leans into that and it's this world of like it's like this weird gothic world where like, you know, there's like a, a a fairy market that they go into and everyone's like selling all this wonderful stuff to everyone else and the the way that the exchange works is like, you know, like you give me a year of your life and I'll give you this like magic feather, like, or like you give me the color of your eyes and I'll give you like your heart's desire. Like, and that kind of like exchange that is so like, like it's all, it's all this exchange, but it's so like weirdly not like it's marketing. It's all market exchange, but it's not capital. It's a right? weird it's version of you in the traditional sense. Yeah. It's weird. It's a weird so version of gothic. commodity fetishism, right? It, it's a very, yeah. uh, like, it's a very kind of weird take on that. Um, you have to look that, yeah. that story up. That's great. Uh, I'll have to look for that one. Um, well, Patrick Higgins, thank you so much. This was, like I said, so much fun. You have an open invitation, yeah. my friend. Uh, anytime you want to talk about anything, just let me know. And, and you're, you're more than welcome to come well, back on the show. Very flattering. Uh, Big fan. Uh, well, no, no, it's, I, I kind of, this, uh, maybe I've made my own Faustian bargain here, but I feel like, um, I've been, this call for people to sort of share their creativity yeah. with me is really kind of, uh, I don't know, been very personally satisfying for myself here. I'm hoping other people are inspired by it and, uh, and kind of empowered by it too i don't uh, this is not a yeah. an npr show where i want to constantly <laughs> interview powerful people i mean this is I, I think of this as much more democratic than that and uh yeah. and this was like an ideal version of it thank you so much um patrick higgins so if you thank go you. to um pen and screen blog you'll find uh his blog i'll put a link up to it in the uh the show notes this was a lot of fun for me and anybody else out there listening if you have something you want to share with the world or not great idea or you just want to Spend an hour talking to a loser like me. Uh, you're more than welcome to do that. Get in touch with the show via the Facebook page or our Twitter account, or we have a, a Gmail. What's it called? Sectarianreview at gmail.com, I think, is my email address. And so uh, look forward to hearing from you. Patrick, anytime, my friend. You're more than welcome. Thank you. For uh, Thank you. Patrick Higgins, I am Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Yeah.